Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. Today's guest is Sarah Downey, principal at Accomplice, a seed stage venture capital firm. In the past, there really weren't too many career paths into the venture capital industry. Typically, someone joined a firm from a top business school or investment banking firm, or perhaps someone was a successful founder and switched over to the investment side. Well, this isn't the case anymore, and Sarah is a perfect example of someone whose career has taken lots of great twists and turns leading up to her current role as a principal at Accomplice. In addition to Sarah's role as an investor, she is also a community builder. She's actively involved in Rev Boston, Tug, and other nonprofits. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the value of having your own user guide to provide others with instructions on the best way to interact with you, Sarah's background story, including her time in law school and her career pivot into the tech industry as a marketer, how she made the transition into venture capital, trends in the augmented reality and virtual reality field, as well as other areas of tech, the importance of elevating more women in the Boston tech scene and Sarah's role in making that happen, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Tug is one of the organizations that Sarah is a part of. One of their flagship events is called Tech Gives Back, which we talk about in length in the podcast. It is the largest industry service event in the country and an opportunity for your company to volunteer for a day of service and work with some incredible nonprofits. This year's event is taking place on October 10th and 11th. Go to tug.org to learn more and sign your company up for this worthy cause. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Sarah. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so you uh, wrote a blog post at one point that I thought was brilliant, and maybe it's something that we all should have. It's almost like um, your own user guide for how you operate and what other people should read to, cut, you know, if they're going to meet with you, they kind of know kind of how you think or how you interact or just, um, you know, if you're out there networking, what Sarah is like as a person. So, so what were you trying to accomplish with that and then kind of some of the details and why other people should have that? So that I can't take credit for that idea. There are many smart people who have done that. And I, I saw a few of them who had done that. And I thought it was a really good idea. And, and I guess in, in my world, I'm meeting people all the time. And I'm sort of trying to get to this center of truth about who they are. You know, and investing the person is the most important part of the deal. And so I'm all day, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's really true here. Who are these people really? What do they want? Um, and I, I just like, I like to cut through the bullshit quickly and I like to be efficient. So I figured, you know, if I want that from people, I should offer it to them. And so that's where that user guide came from. And so I think it's in like 10 bullets and I just put in, here's how I like to work. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Here's the best way to interact with me. And, and part of that is that I'm an introvert. So I, I have a very extroverted kind of job for someone who's an introvert and um, that was sort of tiring and, and I was having some misunderstandings around that. And so I figured like, you know, an introvert doesn't necessarily dislike social functionality, right? I like people. I just, I just get tired by certain situations. So I was like, here are the situations that, that do make me tired and here are the ones that don't. Um, and actually I've had really good feedback from it. I kind of thought I'd put it out and no one would see it, but I've had so many meetings where people come in and they say, I've read your user guide. Here's what I want. And it's amazing. No small so like, talk. All right, great. No small talk because I know you don't like small. Let's just go straight to the point. Let's be efficient. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. 
<laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let, let's talk about your background. So, uh, where did you grow up, and what were you like as a kid? I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, which is. I read recently is one of the most normal towns in all of the United States. It's like the third most representative town of the entire United States in terms of race, ethnicity, back like finance. And it just felt like that growing up. It felt super normal suburbs, you know? Um, so I, I was a pretty weird kid, I guess, perhaps not surprisingly. Um, I read like every Stephen King book that he had written before I was in seventh grade. So I think that did some permanent damage. And um, I had pet rats and I was obsessed with Halloween. Yes, I had multiple pet rats and they were all named Templeton from Charlotte's Web. So it was like (laughs) Templeton version two, version three. So, you know, very normal. (laughs) I I actually, you know what? Here's something that I've probably never disclosed on the podcast. Uh, So when I was in junior high, my favorite band, I was into all the hair bands. My favorite band was Rat. Hell yeah. And I I begged my mom because of that. Round and round, right? Yeah, totally round and round. Like, (laughs) I loved all that. Lay it down. Uh, You're in love. So I was just going through all, this, all the songs. Anyways, I wanted my own pet rat for that simple reason. So now I know someone who actually had a pet rat. Well, they're actually really good pets. And my first job when I was 16 was at a pet store, maybe unsurprisingly there too. But rats are really smart. They're very clean. Like often the the, the rodent that parents will get for their kids is a hamster, right? And the hamsters are undeniably insanely cute. So I'm not going to argue with that, but rats are like they they poop in one corner they cover it up like they come when you call them they're trainable they're just like they'll they'll like sit on your shoulder and you can walk around and do things and they just hang out they're like a parrot like a scary parrot parrot. (laughs) yeah (laughs) all the same name just different version templeton Uh yeah (laughs) no but but you were also an athlete in high school right because yeah so you played what field hockey and yeah. Yeah. So I, I was, um, like a big reader and video gamer and just kind of like weird, but I also, um, I, I was athletic cause my dad was a runner. So he went to Bates college and he got a full scholarship for cross country and he grew up in like a rough, um, neighborhood and just, they didn't have a lot of means and, you know, running really kind of saved his life and brought him out into a, a new um, all kinds of new opportunities. And from a, an early age, my dad would like take me running and I was fast. So I never did kids sports like little league or any of that stuff. But when I was going into high school, one of my friends was starting to play field hockey and I was like, all right, I guess I want to hang out with you. So I'll just go along and do the same thing. And, uh, I wasn't very good at field hockey, but I was, I had really good conditioning. So I could, you know, I, I didn't really know how to handle the ball, but I would like run it into the goal and throw my entire body in there. And that seemed to work. So, so yeah, I did, I did field hockey and then I also did track and so indoor and outdoor track. And then I did all of those, I did all of those through high school and I was captain of all three. Then I went to college and I did field hockey the first year and then only continued with track, but I did it all four years of college and was captain there too. Wow. And were you like a, like a mid distance runner, sprinter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mid distance. Yeah. I did the, anywhere between the 200 if I had to, but mostly like the four, the five and the 800, mostly the 800 to the mm-hmm. point where my most common nightmare still is that 
I have to run an 800. And I like, I had this last week where I woke up and I was like sweating. And in my dream, people are yelling at me like, what are you doing? You got to, the, the race is starting. You got to get on the, the, the line. And I'm like, I don't even, I don't have to do this. Like I'm an adult. <laughs> and they're like, no, you do have to do it. But that's a brutal distance. Sucks. It's a brutal. Yeah. Distance. It's like, it, I, my fastest was like two twenty three, two minutes, 23 seconds. And it's, it's a mix between sprinting, but for too long. Yeah. It's like, take, take the amount that you can sprint comfortably if there is such a thing and then double it and yeah. then just like cry. Right. <laughs> yeah. My daughter <laughs> runs track and I'm just like, it's just the roughest distance because it is that middle, middle ground where you're not doing the mile where you can kind of like, yeah. and you're not doing a full 100, 200. It's that you know, yeah. times around that you're sprinting full out. <sighs> I feel for her, man. And also those track meets are tough because it's like hours, 12 hours, right? Not including travel where you're just waiting around <laughs> to, to hurt yourself. Right, for two minutes. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do not miss that. <laughs> okay, so uh, you graduated from Hamilton and then you mm-hmm. went on to, to, to law school. So what was the, the thinking mm-hmm. there? That was, <laughs> you know, sometimes I feel like that was a mistake, but I also feel like, I got enough out of it that it was worthwhile. But my thinking at the time was that I was a psychology major undergrad and I always wanted to be a psychologist because I think people's minds are interesting. I like to understand people's quirks and motivations and what makes them tick. So I figured, yeah, I'll, I'll be a psychologist, right? And then in college, um, a couple of my friends were going through sort of mental health issues at the same time. And um, my reaction to that was sort of not what it should be for me to be a good therapist. It was kind of like, all right, how do we solve this problem? Let's just fix it. And it'll be done. And I think that lack of patience was not going to work as a therapist. And I could, I could see that. So kind of like what happened with field hockey, where one of my friends was like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. Uh, one of my other friends was like, I'm going to apply to law school. And I was like, okay, well, uh, I guess I'll do that, you know, because if I'm not going to be a doctor, I'll be a lawyer because, you know, what could go wrong with either of those paths, right? So right. I kind of had no idea what I was going to do. I just felt like, you know, the law is a more direct route to solving people's problems. And that's what I wanted to do in psychology, except the business model of psychology is a little warped where as soon as you solve the problem, the person stops coming in to see you mm-hmm. and they stop paying you. So I was like, well, at least with the law, like there's this expectation that I have the answer. You come to me, you bill by the hour, whatever I fix it. And then you're off. And, um, I really like reading and writing too. And I had heard you do a lot of that in law school. So, um, yeah, I, I took the LSAT and then I applied to only one school, which was the university of Connecticut. Cause I was from there and I couldn't afford it otherwise. So I literally had no plan other than this one law school that had a pretty low acceptance rate. And I have, I had, no idea what would happen if I didn't get in, but luckily I did. <laughs> and while you're in law school, you're also doing other things like making websites and podcasting. So you must have been like mm-hmm. super early on in, in the world of podcasting. Yeah, I, I was a fan of podcasts way back in the beginning. And I started my own in like 2008, I want to say. Wow. Um, and it was... Uh, it was a real outlet because when I was in law school, it was 
UConn was probably not as bad as some of them are out there, but it was pretty conservative and it's really restrictive as far as creativity because you go from an undergrad liberal arts school like I did, like Hamilton, where, you know, you can almost design your own curriculum and be super creative and that's really celebrated. And then at law school, all of a sudden everybody's taking the same courses and there, there's just no avenue to, to do anything different. So I really felt like I needed that outlet. And um, I started this podcast that had nothing to do with law. It was just like personal interest stuff under a pseudonym. Um, and that was like the most fun that I had <laughs> doing this thing that was completely unrelated to law school. All right. So then what happened next? You graduate from law school, then what? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I graduated from law school sort of, I would say about halfway through the three years of that, I realized this probably wasn't what I wanted to do for a job. Um, I, I found the criminal law stuff really interesting and also the intellectual property side, but most of the jobs, especially in Connecticut were like, you will go work for a very big firm. It will crush the life out of you. You will play golf. You will wear suits. And I was like, I didn't come here to, to do any of that shit. So I, in this like moment of desperation where I was $90,000 in debt and had a degree that I didn't think I wanted to use, I was like, you know, let me just go look on Craigslist and see what comes out. And let me look at Boston because mm-hmm. I just, my, my grandma's from uh, Framingham. My mom grew up there. So I'd like been to the Boston Aquarium. Like I've seen Boston. It was not as scary as New York. And I, I kind of like always had a good vibe with Boston. So um, I literally went on Craigslist and uh, looked in the legal services section. And I ended up finding this job posting for a startup that uh, ended up being it, like now looking back, it was a, basically at the pre-seed stage mm-hmm. Um and they needed somebody to launch their blog and kind of like talk to customers and do everything. And so I went up there in a suit, which is awkward to think about now. Um, and I was like, yeah, 20 bucks an hour. Let's do this. And they hired me. And that, that changed the whole course of my life. Well, I guess, you know, life kind of has twists and turns, but things happen for a reason, right? Because mm-hmm. your background ended, ended up being a good fit for what that company was actually doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah privacy right so so this was a yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah. and it, it was particularly a good fit because through that podcast that I had done under a pseudonym I had gotten some stalkers and I had to figure out how they found me and it was through like website registration stuff and some social media stuff but I had to really figure that out and that gave me a real appreciation for the scope of damage that can be done with things having to do with online privacy. So I I really cared about it and I was a crusader for it. And that, that was really important because, um, I think Abine was a really interesting company that was also just too early on the side of all of this privacy stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, like it was maybe two and a half or three years into me being there when the NSA stuff with Snowden happened. And until that point, we had really just been having to educate everybody that we came up against about how privacy is actually a, a thing you should care about. Yeah. Because everybody's just like, eh, whatever, I don't have anything to hide. Who cares? Like, the internet doesn't know anything about me. It's like, oh, yeah, far worse than you realize. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So there you kind of, like, 
built a foundation of experience in, in, you know, the tech startup industry. Um, and then, so then you start getting more into a, a career path in marketing, right? So mm-hmm. you, now you, you spend some time at startup Institute too, which I thought was interesting where, you know, that mm-hmm. program, uh, you know, in terms of what they set out to accomplish really did you know, pay some major dividends to fueling the talent pool in Boston. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got into startup Institute because after three years at Abine, um, I had been doing marketing and, and product. And I was also the spark spokesperson for the company. And that's one of the ways in which the law degree helped actually, because it turns out people put you on the news. If you've got Esquire at the end of your name, even if you, you don't in fact know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> so I ended up, you know, I spent three years there, but it was also like, it was kind of wearing on me too, because privacy is tough. You deal with a lot of people's like personal issues and difficulties. And the more I learned about what Facebook was doing and what some of these big companies were doing with buying and selling user data, I just was getting like depressed about that. Um, and so I was like, I need a break and I don't exactly know what I want to do, but when I don't know what I do, when I don't know what I want to do, I, I, I go to school technically. And that's what I did with law school. And you know, it was a roundabout path, but it sort of worked. So I heard about Startup Institute and I was like, you know what, I'm all about skill acquisition. So let me apply. And I was accepted, I think the same day. And then I, then I went. Um, and actually the first day that I was there. So do you know Alan Tellio? Yeah. Know him well. Yeah. So Alan was the one I had interviewed with. And when I showed up day one, he was like, you have to talk to this company Ovia. They were called Oviline at the time, yep. um, but now they're Ovia Health. They're, and he was like, you just got to talk to them. They're about to launch this product. They have exactly the personality match for you. And so literally day one of Startup Institute, I went and met with this company and I was like, all right, I'm going to work with them. And that's, that's what ended up happening. Like I went through the program, but I also helped Ovia with their, their launch of their pregnancy app. And as soon as I was done with Stark Institute, I was officially hired to, to be director of marketing there. Wow. So you built the, you know, they were, were they in market yet? Mm-hmm. So, you so they the were with, um, they had a fertility app that was in market, but they were just about to launch their pregnancy app while I was at Startup Institute. Okay. And I was like, this is exactly the type of thing that I know how to do. And I don't even need to work for you to help you with this because that's why I'm here. Um, so I helped them with that launch and we got to feel each other out and know each other while we were doing that project. And then afterwards, um, they brought me on full time. Okay. So here we you know, we kind of like, you know, graduated with a psych degree to law school to, um, you know, running marketing and startups to now in venture capital. So I think what's kind of cool about the world of venture capital these days is there are these different ways that people get involved. It's not as not that there was ever a clear path in the venture capital before, but it was more defined of, you know, you could, um, you know, somehow fall into it through uh, maybe B school and get hired as a principal and work your way up to a partner role, or you're a, you know, a great entrepreneur and they ask you as an operator to become an investor. But, um, you know, now you see people with different ways of how they get there. But so talk about your story. Like, how did you end up at mm-hmm. Accomplice and, uh, you know, landing a position there? Yeah. I mean, I think what you just said is absolutely right. And, and I think it's a good thing because if, if every venture capitalist came from an associate program or a business school connection or a 
you know, investment banking background, we would have even more of a problem of everyone in this job looking exactly the same. So I think, you know, I've seen people who have been like journalists, for example, I think is a really interesting en route to, to VC because both of both roles are truth seekers. Like you, you have people kind of inundating you with requests there, there may be puffer, there's some puffery on the metrics that they're giving you. Like they want something from you. We have to figure out what it is. Mm -hmm. And, and, and if you bite, you're sort of rewarding them in journalism with eyeballs on their story and in venture capital with dollars for their business. And you have a, a place of responsibility to withhold until you can give those resources to the best possible people. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a actually a really good kind of set of skills to get into venture that we've seen some, some people doing. Um, in my case, like I had no, I had no desire to be in venture capital. I didn't even really know what it was. Like when I worked at Abine, I was aware that at a certain point, we moved from above this bar in central square with four people to like a really nice office in Fort point. And we had $5.2 million and that seemed to come from nothing other than a PowerPoint deck. And I was just like, all right, that's great. Cause now I get to work with all these new people and have all this cool stuff, but I don't really know how that worked. <laughs> and, um, but it happened that my now partner, Jeff Bagnet at accomplice uh, co-led the series a in Abine with mm -hmm. general catalyst. So at, that's kind of like, he was aware of me doing the work that I was doing at Abine and apparently thought I was doing a good job. And I had, meanwhile, I had no idea who he was. And then, uh, when I went to Ovia, he reached out and was like, Hey, um, you know, is there, do you want to work in a portfolio company? Is, and I was like, what's a portfolio? You know, like, what are you talking? Like, who is this guy? Um, so I was like, no, I I would rather not work in finance because the finance that I have in my head is very boring, and that's what I wanted to avoid with law school. And I'm like, I'm covered in tattoos, and I swear, and like my my office here is filled with action figures, and like this just doesn't seem like a fit, sir. Right. So thanks. Um, but then uh, six months into be, me being at Ovia, he came came back and was like, hey why don't you just kind of meet some of the people who work here and let's just keep this conversation going. And I was actually more willing to do that at that point because the the product that I was helping to build out at Ovia was involved working with big insurance companies. And it was kind of like not the startup existence that I want. It was more like big, slow moving companies. Um, so anyway, they, they got me on, on this, this role, which was uh, director of community or platform, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, is kind of a weird role. And it means different things at almost every firm that I've, I've talked to. But fundamentally, VC firms just have money. Like that is the thing that we are selling money and we either have more of it or less of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might take money from one firm over another because you get to work with a certain partner or you get certain perks and so my job was to figure out like, what is the product that we are offering besides money to these founders? Is it office space? Is it software, Slack channels, events, networking, all these different things. Um, so they brought me in to do that. And I really liked that. It was fun. I liked thinking about like the brand of the firm and kind of like the content that we were putting out and VC firms are like media properties today. So it was kind of like fun to, to do that and think about that. And in that role, 
I started working really closely with our portfolio companies, just like I did with Ovia. You know, if, if a company was in and I liked them and I cared about them and they're, they're having a launch this week, I'm going to just like offer my services to help them write their web copy or contact journalists or whatever it is that I can help with. And um, the, the investors here were like, hey, you want to join the investment team? Because that's essentially what you do which again was news to me because I thought this was a big kind of like lofty people sitting on thrones with coins surrounding them. And like, I don't really know what venture capitalists do, but turns out they're just kind of like entrepreneurs, except on a more macro scale where you're working with a lot of different companies instead of just one. So um, about a year and a half into me being there, they, I joined the investment team and that's what I've been doing since. And it's been about five years total. Awesome. Now, you talked about brand, uh, which I always, uh, I remember this when you guys did this, and I, I probably even submitted a name, but when, oh, yeah. <laughs> when the team broke off from Atlas and had to rebrand, you ran a contest of, hey, help us name our firm. And there was, there was like a prize. It was like a legit prize. Yeah, we gave away a $50,000 LP commitment in That's our right. new fund. So, so like I read, we had 16,000 name submissions. And I went and I read through every single one of them. And some of them were amazingly hilarious. There were a lot of like boring kind of corporate. And then there were some really good ones. And Accomplice came from that that group. And actually it was a guy in San Diego who used to, he worked for iHeartMedia. And I got to get him on a Google Hangout. And I said like, hey, I have some questions about your name, but I was recording it. And I was like, hey, so you won $50,000. And it's not just fifty thousand dollars. It's 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 fifty thousand dollars as though fund. he invested in our fund. Yeah. So if we do our jobs, right. you know, we make at least three times that. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good chunk. Real money. <laughs> we actually we flew that guy out to our annual meeting because he's technically an investor. So yeah, he's <laughs> that's he's awesome. in. Yeah, that was a really fun. That was a really fun project. Yeah. Because our thesis name. was like you know these branding agencies are probably not going to be as good as just the public is at coming up with something like this. So, and I think that we were right. So now as a, you know, you've been with Accomplice for a while and part of the investment team, like, so what is your area of of focus and, you know, type of, you know, stage of investing that you're doing? Mm -hmm. So at the firm, generally we all do seed investing and seed is an amorphous term that means a lot of different things. But for us, that usually means a one and a half to $3 million first check for us. Um, and so usually something is built, people have tried the product. It's not just a couple people in a garage with an idea. Um, however, I also personally angel invest. So for things that are just an idea or something totally out there, um, I will occasionally write those checks personally. Um, but my my area is is what's called frontier tech and that just for me that means like weird sci-fi ideas like gaming or ar and vr or um ai and you know like next gen applications of digital health um and and really like the thing that underlies all of that is it's just stuff that i'm personally interested in you know and like if somebody comes in and they have i don't want to pick on insurance, but I will because my dad worked in insurance for 38 years. So I feel entitled to do that. Um, Like if someone comes in with a slightly better SaaS product for insurance, 
I'm just not excited about that, you know, but, but like earlier today, one of the pitches that I saw was a company that's doing an AI algorithm where you can type a description of, let's say a landscape. And then in real time, this AI algorithm generates a 360 world based on what you're typing. So if you wanted to like storyboard something or you wanted to create your own VR environment and just hang out in it, it was like, I have no idea if they're going to make money, right? But (laughs) it was fucking insane to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Or like I invested in a company that does, um, it's a robot that does eyelash extensions. So like, I think it's a pretty cool, like Judy Jetsonizing of, of beauty where women spend a lot of time with makeup and hair and all these things that are obnoxious, but in the end kind of do give us more power in this culture and the society because it values things like that. And so, you know, if you can make those things faster and more efficient, that's interesting to me. So yeah, that was a, that was a crazy one. So, you know, you talked about the seeker of the truth element. So is that Mm -hmm. kind of, because I'll go to an event and I swear like every entrepreneur that I meet these days, they're like, well, we're an AI, something, something, something. And it's just yeah. like, <laughs> and you're okay, like, are I'm, you really though? Right. Are and you really? not like, you know, machine mm-hmm. learning. And it's just like, well, like how deep is this technology? So like, how do you like decipher the, the real yeah. game changers versus the pretenders? It's so, it's hard. A lot of it is the people's backgrounds. You know, like if somebody came out of MIT and they have their PhD in computer vision, it's like a much likelier that what they're telling you is computer vision really is. Um, The AI thing is a good point you bring up. AI, most of the time that we see it in pitches is just logic. It's like an if this, then that or a decision tree. It's not true neural networks or deep learning. Um, it's, it's kind of like with blockchain too, like suddenly everything is decentralized in a pitch or like everything is big data or, or, you know, you cutting through the bullshit is just part of the job. You know, we have some experts in our portfolio, people that we've invested in and people that we haven't. So when it gets to the point of being real deep questions on that, we might send it to those experts, but, um, you know, I have several kind of layers of filtering. So the first is I'll often want to see the deck. And a lot of times you can tell just from that. Mm-hmm. So I try not to actually get on the phone or meet with somebody in person if my bullshit detectors are still going off really strongly. Because I just don't, I don't want that to be a waste of either of our time. Yeah. And w- what is the best way to get in touch with you to get that first meeting or at least, you know, to send you the pitch deck and know that you're actually going to read it versus just blindly mm-hmm. sending it through email? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, if you email me, I will read it. You know, I definitely I read every single email. I don't respond to every single one. The, I, I just like it to be personalized. You know, I, I want to know like, why me? Why are you sending it to me? You could just copy and paste this to every VC and some giant list. But, you know, if, if I do invest, this is going to be a 10 plus year relationship at least. So I want to know why you think you and I would be good together. And it's like a romantic, it's a romantic proposition, but it's it's a 10 year commitment, hopefully. Yeah. And like, we're going to go through some shit. It will be hard. It will be great. It will be sad. We will cry. We will get drunk. Like all of these things will happen. And it, and it shouldn't just be like, Hey, copy paste exactly the same thing. Right. You know? Yeah. So what's the trends in the, in the industry that you're seeing of, you know, real 
practical uses of AR, VR, what maybe it's in the enterprise mm-hmm. these days or consumer. Like, so what, what are the things that, that you're excited about in you know today's landscape of investing? That's also, I guess, would have to be somewhat futuristic because yeah. you're seed investors. Yeah. Um, so one thing I saw recently and I, without giving away like the name of the company or what they're doing, um, they had this idea of using the principles of evolution to improve not only bios, biomaterials, but ideas. Um, so basically, this is going to sound like one of those bullshit pitches that you were just saying with AI and machine learning, but like using machine learning and evolution together to harvest the naturally occurring mutations that happen in populations and then draw those out. So like, trying to, I'm trying to think about how to say this without <laughs> giving away this company. Um, but like, let's say that you could grow fruit flies and you could, and they, they, you know, their life cycles are very quick and you can breed them very quickly. So let's say you're able to harness positive mutations in those flies or push them towards having characteristics that are desirable for one way or another and building a reactor that uses actual computer science to drive those mutations like that, that is it's almost like genetic uh modification but more natural and faster um so that you could create say like algae for food sources that would be like 400 percent more efficient than what we do today um or for crickets you know um so that was something i saw that was kind of mind-blowing recently um i think there's a lot happening around blockchain and decentralization that's bullshit but then there's a lot that's really interesting so i think we're getting to a point with blockchains where transactions that used to be way too costly are now becoming affordable so for instance for like publishing or media um we're at a point now where we could conceivably pay fractions of a cent in order to read an article or to do something online or almost to like tip and I think that that's really cool because there, it's it's obvious that the free media like landscape is not working. It doesn't benefit people for doing good work. It's clickbaity. Um, I think people will pay for content, mm-hmm. and maybe they won't pay a lot, but they'll pay a little. And, and tech needs to be able to enable that. And we're getting to the point where we're, we're just there. So I think that will be good. I love 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 that idea because there's. Um, legit sources of information, one being today, the Wall Street Journal has, mm-hmm. have this, has this profile on the founder of, of WeWork. And mm-hmm. it looked really good, except I can't read it because I'm not a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And I don't think I would consume enough content to warrant a Wall Street Journal subscription. Exactly, uh, so right. I'd rather have it be more opportunistic of, I'm gladly pay for that article, but you know, so mm-hmm. it just, I think that's a no brainer. Yeah. And like you want to reward that kind of good journalism, right? right. And it, there's almost like a, an idea around the bundling of those kinds of news sources, almost like a Netflix, but customized for you that has, you know, profiles of people in Wall Street Journal, maybe like a couple of things from the information, a couple other things so mm-hmm. that you could, you could create this like your morning news package, but it consists of maybe specific writers at publications, not the publication itself, because that, that doesn't really work. You know, it's, it's a high bar to subscribe to something like the Wall Street Journal when you really don't care about 99% of it. Exactly. Interesting. So this, you know, again, we talked about your career path and how you've gotten to where you are today. It sounds like this, 
it probably couldn't be a more perfect job based on your interest in science fiction and just you know yeah. being able to see these entrepreneurs that have these revolutionary groundbreaking ideas it just must be yeah. really uh interesting every day it's really it's really awesome um there are days where i'm like i can't believe i get paid to do this you know i i would pay to see a lot of this stuff i mean that said there are i'm not going to sugarcoat it because i think this is a job that a lot of people on the outside want, but it's not an easy job. Like it is 24 seven, if you allow it to be, because, you know, pitches can come from anywhere. Deal flow can come from anywhere. A lot of it's tied to your personal brand. There's this feeling that you got to be on all the time. And, um, you know, there's, there's some real FOMO in, in this job, especially. So if you have, if you subscribe to that, you can run into this path where you feel like you've got to take every meeting, you've got to leave no stone unturned. And I think that the challenge is like, how do you do that while maintaining empathy for the founders that you're meeting with and kind of like maintaining your own boundaries around what you're interested in and what you're physically capable of doing yeah. for like, that's why I had that user guide because as an introvert, I kind of have to put up those boundaries and protect myself. Otherwise, there's just so many events. There's so many things you should do. Um, you kind of have to keep forcing yourself to do what you you want because this is such a personal industry. Yeah. Now, the other thing that you're, you are known for is more of the community building aspect. So you've done a, a couple of things. One, uh, you know, Rev Boston, which, you know, we have uh, Lead Her, which we publish at, well, twice a week now, one edition for Boston, cool. one edition in New York. And that you know, the whole goal is uh, there needs to be more women in leadership roles in tech. And, uh, you know, so we're like, well, why don't we profile the ones that are there and share how they got from A to B in their career and then some fun Q&A afterwards, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, it's one of our most popular series for good reason. But, you know, Rev Boston, it, you know, I, I looked at, you know, the number of people that have been, um, you know, recognized through the years. And it's like, oh, yeah, she was on my podcast or she was on Lead Her. <laughs> so it's a great list. But so what, nice. what led you down the path of, you know, starting that with Jeff Fagnan and, and Diane Hessen? Yeah. So it was it was, it came from a conversation that we were having that you have probably had to that led you to create that blog series, which was there's more than five women in Boston tech who should be called up for panels or keynotes or whatever. And yet you see the same names and the same faces all the time. And there's just this level of under the radar that a lot of talented women in Boston occupy. And, you know, Diane Hessen is one of those five. Like she's one of those people that always gets called to do everything. And part of it is she doesn't want to do all of those things. Like right. she, she shouldn't do all of those things. She wants to, to expose other people. And from our perspective too, at Accomplice, we were thinking, you know, there's obviously not enough women venture capital investors. And then, it's kind of a pipeline problem because a lot of VCs come from being founders or CEOs. And obviously there's not as many women in those roles too. And then we're, we're like, well, let's go even one step below that and look at the director and VP level. And that feels like a place where we could actually make an impact because people are still, they still have a lot ahead of them, but they've demonstrated enough success where you can kind of bet that they're going to be the next generation of, of um, successes here. So so we were like, all right, let's get a small group of people together in a room for a day and a half and put program to together that, that is going to help them if they are interested in doing more than just their job, which they don't have to because their jobs are a big part of their lives. But if they want to start angel investing, 
if they want to be an advisor, if they want to be on a board, how do they actually start that? Because that's that's just a weird thing if you haven't done it. Like, is someone going to materialize out of nowhere and just ask me to be on a board? And it's like, the answer is no. You, you all, like all of these women in this group who are directors and VPs in Boston Tech have a, like a, amazing uh, credibility and capability to be good board members, but they just, they don't, they're not out there on a list until they're on rev and they don't know that they have that ability until somebody tells them. So the point for us is like, this is how you do it. You can do it today and you should ask, like, there's nothing wrong with asking um, and just putting it out there to the community. Hey, I'm willing to, I'm looking for board seats, you know? Um, so that, so rev is now, this will be the fifth year and we invite 20 women each cohort. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of them come out of their starting to angel invest, founding their own companies, referring customers to each other, um, being on boards. So like, I feel like almost every week I hear another success story about somebody who's like, yeah, I'm on a board now. And it's just cause I asked, cause like, they're already so talented. It's just a lot of times just the recognition and, and taking the, the step to ask. Yeah. So part of it is like we release that list of 20 and we maintain the previous honorees because I want a place in Boston where people can say, I need a woman for a panel or I need a woman for a board. Like, here's the list. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. Trying to make it easy. And it, it really, sometimes it can be hard for those companies to get um, talented people on their boards just because you keep hearing the same name. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to reduce um, the difficulty there. Now I noticed you recently, you know, had um, nominees, and that you know the the nominees are now closed. But so, how mm-hmm. do you uh, decide who is ultimately selected for? <laughs> well, I have a giant spreadsheet up right now. I'm looking at this monitor, but I have another monitor behind me, and it's like the whole thing is just names that came in for that. So it's a factor of a bunch of things. Um, it's the what is what do the nominees say about this person? Like some of the 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 language that they use is so amazing, just over the top. Um, and it's the, the nominator themselves. So if someone is a, a previous Rev member, I obviously take that into consideration. And then just generally, like, I'm looking for a mix of people who are not all the same. Like, just because you're a woman in Boston Tech at this kind of level in your career, there's so much variability even in that. So I'm looking for different, you know, company sizes, different, um, technical skill sets or non-technical. Like I don't want everyone to be a VP of marketing. Mm -hmm. And by far that is the most common, um, job title that is submitted. Um, like I look for people who maybe don't even have that many nominations because they're quiet or like, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like dig people out who, like when I go and do background checks, their team says we would be fucked if this person left tomorrow, but like no one knows who they are. Yeah. So I, and I try to get a mix of ages and personality types. And, um, it's almost like that, that group of 20 as a unit is as important as the individuals in it. Cause I want them to come out of this and feel like a group that can stick together. So the other thing that you're, well, you're involved in lots of things. So these aren't the only two things, but um, uh, Tug. So you're on the board of Tug, which is a, uh, a charitable organization that, if I have my facts right, it was, it was originated by Jeff Fagnan and mm-hmm. then um, Haymont uh, from General and, Catalyst. Yeah, so, so they founded it. And it's, it's essentially 
the the it's supposed to be a connector in Boston between the tech community and the nonprofits because you know the early early risky still figuring things out nonprofits and the tech startups um, have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 messy. You're doing twenty jobs at once and you don't have enough resources. Um, and the the talent in the tech world can do a lot for those nonprofits. Cause like a lot of times, yes, they need funding, but they also, you know, don't know how to set up a CRM. They, they don't know how to get a good like email campaign going. They, their computers are really old and they don't know how to get them optimized. So there's like, there's ways in which the tech community in Boston can help beyond just funding. Um, and tug has always been about connecting those two, um, those two groups. And also, um, Tug has an interesting model of crowdfunding. So they have these big events um, twice a year. There's the wine and tequila party, and then there's Tech Gives Back. But the wine and tequila party is, uh, like, the nonprofits will be at this party um, in their T-shirts going up to the tech people in the crowd and aggressively pitching them about what their nonprofit does. Mm -hmm. And then the tech attendees vote for their favorite nonprofits, and then based on the votes, grants are distributed to those nonprofits. So like the community as a whole decides who to fund. And then Tug has a portfolio of its own nonprofits that it supports. Well, and the other flagship event you mentioned is um, Tech Gives Back, which is coming up soon. So share more of the details mm-hmm. on what that program is all about and how companies can get involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Tech Gives Back is, I believe, the biggest volunteer event in the country, I want to wow. say. And um, yeah, so I think this is all about pairing up the tech companies in Boston with those nonprofits around projects that they need done. So it's, it's a a day of service um, or it might be a week this year, but it's, you know, one or a few days of service where everybody in, in, in the companies gets together and works on these projects that the nonprofits have said they needed help with. So I believe we're going to have about 150 total companies and nonprofits involved in this day. And it's, it's like, it's really fun. You can go with your whole team, go um, do these projects and it's super meaningful for both sides. And then at the end we have a big party and everybody hangs out, but it's like, it's, it's a really, um, it's a really awesome coming together of those two groups and this is actually the first year where we're having skill-based volunteering because in the past we had, you know, we had worthy projects, no, no doubt, but it would be things like you might paint a wall or pick up trash, you know, or at an elementary school, which is ex- extremely valid and necessary, but it doesn't really take the most advantage of the skill set that the tech community has. So now this year we have projects like, you know, like, you know, set up a CRM or um, help with branding or do some customer discovery. So it's things that this group should, should know how to do. So that's exciting. I'm, I'm pumped for that. That's cool. I didn't know you guys were expanding the, the, you know, kind of the, the actual mm-hmm. giving back the actual activities. Cause yeah, I remember it was definitely a lot of community-based service of mm-hmm. cleaning things up or painting, you know, part of a building to clean it up type of stuff. So yeah, it's interesting that it's expanding and yeah, it's, I mean, it's just been such a worthy cause for, I mean, everything that tug does, I mean, we've always promoted all the events or any, you know, programming. Um, and then, you know, for this, this being one of the flagship ones, it's definitely a great opportunity for companies to get involved too. You know, it's, we're all kind of heads down 
building companies, but it's good to yeah. kind of give your employees the opportunity to spend a day, you know, giving back and giving their, their time. Yeah. I mean, you've always, you guys have always been great with promoting it and we appreciate that. And I think it's like, it really is a competitive advantage when hiring and retaining talent today to, mm-hmm. to say, we we have like a nonprofit that we've adopted or at the minimum we, we participate in days like these because especially millennials, they don't just want to go to work for a paycheck. They right. really want something meaningful with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And the, we have companies like Insight Squared, which is in our portfolio and based here in Boston that has really, you know, unofficially adopted like inner city weightlifting, which is a tug nonprofit. Um, to the extent that they built out um, a gym right next to their office in the past. And they, you know, they have team members sponsor corporate workouts and they go and, and hang out there all the time. So like, you know, there's even been people inside squared who have hired uh, like entry level people from inner city weightlifting. So there's, there's all kinds of like back and forth that can happen when these two universes are, are crashing into each other and they don't normally well, let's talk about outside of work. So, um, you know, so I think, uh, we talked before this podcast, you said Halloween is like your Christmas, right? And yeah. then you go to this uh, conference is a dragon con. Once yeah. So you, uh, have some amazing outfits in terms of cosplay of different villains or actors or so. So mm-hmm. out of all those, maybe this is a hard question to ask you because yeah. you had so many amazing costumes, but, uh, what, what was your all time favorite? Oh man. Um, I dressed up as Gaston from Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. and it was uh, like gender swap Gaston. And that was awesome because like, I loved Beauty and the Beast when I was growing up and I, I always was kind of fascinated by Gaston because he's supposed to be the bad guy yet. There's so many kind of good qualities about him. Like I realized he's a chauvinistic asshole, but at the same time he's, he's legitimately trying to save this woman who's been captured by an actual monster and like he gets so much shit for that. Plus he, he obviously works out and I, and I, I lift a lot of weights. So I was like, you know, that guy's got biceps to spare. And so do I. So I was like, it was like a good flex opportunity for my, my costume. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, I'm sure you have a, a great one already in store for Halloween and, and Dragon Con coming up. I don't actually. I'm Uh-oh. like, you know, Dragon Con is Labor Day weekend. So that's a whole thing. And when I come back, oh, okay. I'm kind of costumed out. But Got it. I don't know. I, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about it. I don't want to reuse anything. You know, that's, right. that's weak. Yeah. Keep it original. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional background and uh, your experience as a venture capitalist and all the great tips there. And then obviously all the great work you're doing with, uh, with Tug and, and Rev Boston. Cool. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.